Welcome to the Sword and the Trowel, the podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. My name is Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for being with us today. Well, we got a conference coming up that we want to spend some time talking about here in our first segment. What's that conference all about, Tom? That conference is all about the gospel and what flies under the umbrella today of social justice. So it is a gospel built around Micah 6, 8, which tells us that we are to do justice, we are to love kindness, and we are to walk humbly with our God. This is what God requires of us. So that's going to be our theme, and we've invited in some guest speakers to join with me and you, and uh, we will be hosting the conference here at Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, January 3rd through 5th and there's still time for you to come. Uh, You can walk up and register as long as there is space available. Okay, and hopefully that these uh, talks are going to be recorded and put out on video. So Yes, we're planning to do that. Live out of state and you're watching this or listening to this the day before, you know, you could try to get on a plane. Yeah. But if you can't. Or drive all night. Yeah. But for you guys that are local, no excuse. No, no excuse. excuse at all. Yeah. And if you're really committed, you know, you'd be here. If you want more information, you can go to founders.org and look for the little brochure on the conference. Okay. Um, so big idea of the conference. Why is it important? Well, because this is an issue that is current in the evangelical world. And it is a very divisive issue. We talked for several weeks about the statement on social justice and the gospel that you and I both signed and many of our friends uh, have not signed and have had debates about and questions about. And the conversations that we've had on this podcast about it have highlighted some of the issues that are involved. So we've got a lot of Christians, good Christians, Reformed Christians, talking about the issues of social justice and some of the way those issues are being discussed and promoted, we think, are unhealthy and can be dangerous even if we take the Bible seriously. Mm-hmm. Things are hot right now and there there is great division and that division signals that something important is going on. Right. I think I heard Peter, Jordan Peterson say this recently, like, you know, that when there's when there's a fight it's because something something matters we're trying to get this figured out now i'm not saying that anybody on either side that's saying crazy stuff has a right to say crazy stuff that shouldn't be done but the conversation that continues to go on about uh, the issues of justice in society uh, signals to us that we've really got to figure this out. We got to. It's a call to the church to um, say what what is justice, what is uh, God's law, and its role in the church and in society, and how do we go about doing justice in the world? Yeah, and even the way you phrased the uh, issue there, framed it, is helpful. And I fear that that's not always happening in some of the loudest sectors that are speaking on this issue. What does God's law have to say about this? So often we're hearing, well, of course, this is what's right. This is what must be done Mm -hmm. because this is only what is right. Well, says who? That's the big issue. And we want to get at that in this conference. And we've just recently, last week, 
uh, your alma mater, Southern Seminary, released its study on racism mm-hmm. in the history of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And it's a hard read. I haven't quite finished it, but uh, the things I've read in there and the, the conversations I've heard from people I respect surrounding it, it's just gut-wrenching to see that this kind of blatant racism and sin has been uh, carried out uh, by those who built the seminary, who many of whom we respect and esteem and still learn from today. But nevertheless, those are facts, and we have to face the facts. But in the wake of those facts coming to light, some of the things that are being said and some of the, the therefores that are being uh, not just suggested but are forcefully being put out there um, should give us pause, mm-hmm. and we should have conversations about them. Uh, the it seems we're touching on uh, very important truths, and it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of clarity around them. And the as much of the SBTS report I've presently read, what jumps out to me is the um, racial pride that existed. Mm. So we'll talk about racism. There is racial pride, uh, racial superiority. And that uh, ought to be repudiated, and we should ensure that such um, racial vainglory doesn't um, remain today in the church in any way. It should be driven out. But there's also a lot of language of racial equality. And when we start mm-hmm. talking about um, equality, that's just huge. The whole notion of equality is very important. I'm reading Russell Kirk, uh, his The Conservative Mind right now, and I think he quotes John Adams as saying, um, when he's thinking about equality and the French Revolution and all this stuff, he said, you know, there's equality before God and equality before the court. And he said, outside of that, I don't, you know, he, he had no sense of equality right. beyond that. And I'm not even claiming that's right. It was just fascinating to hear that that conversation is going on by the second president of the United States. And what is equality? What do we mean when we say it? Mm-hmm. And I think that we have a duty to to figure out what we mean, to be clear about what we're saying so that we can see uh, justice done. Right. It's the assumptions that I think are keeping conversations from being too productive and moving forward very much and we've got to drill down and ask okay you know what is what are we assuming here like what do you mean by equality equality before the law absolutely that's why uh, our images of lady justice have her blindfolded because she doesn't care what you look like she doesn't care where you come from Uh, she's concerned about the law being applied in a just equitable manner to anyone who comes before it. And that's right. That's good. But we're talking about equality of opportunities or equality of giftings or equality of um, blessings or privileges or liabilities. No, Mm -hmm. there's not any equality. And this is God's world. It's the way that he rules over this world. Sin has come in and affected us on multiple levels, every level. But I think even without sin, there was not complete equity with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Mm. You know, when I, I, I've been assigned to give a message on sexuality at this conference, and in some of my research for it, I'm, I've looked up the, uh, the Revoice conference that was held I don't mm-hmm. know how many months ago. And one of the 
speakers at the conference is they're they're in a time of what they call a lament, and one of the speakers is a man who identifies as a gay Christian, and he went to seminary, and and he was lamenting that when he went to different churches and did interviews and said, I'm a gay man, um, that the churches didn't hire him. <laughs> and they said, oh, you know, this inequality, this was was the subtext of what was, mm-hmm. and people, they're <laughs> lamenting over this fact. And then he got a job somewhere, and he was there for a couple weeks, and then some other pastor explained that he was gay. And again, with all the caveats, I understand the revoice, their same-sex um, sexual activity is off-limits. They say right. this is bad, this is wrong. And yet they're still identifying as as um, a gay Christian or gay Christians. And so I could see, I'm thinking, what do you say to this when you say, well, this is an equal, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm resisting this desire but i want to identify this way and now i can't be a pastor of a church and that's not equal because Mm -hmm. you know this other guy that is homosexual desire he can well you can see the the mess if you if you grant if you say equality means something that it really doesn't mean you're gonna have all kinds of problems you're gonna get in hot water so i think we need to get clear on this issue because it applies to a, a a lot of different spheres yeah and you've just opened a big can of worms in terms of uh what you're going to be addressing in your message that's another good reason for people to come down here and attend the conference january 3rd through 5th and hear what you have to say in setting the record straight on biblical sexuality So in our second segment here at The Sword and the Trowel, we talk about a book. And today we're talking about a great one, a favorite, I would say. That is Jonathan Edwards's Religious Affections. Uh, I, I took the class at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and listened to audio lectures of John Gerstner, Edwards <laughs> Scholar, uh, who had a great voice. And, yes, uh, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> and uh, I remember being introduced to Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. This book is fascinating in its setup. It's dealing with the great—it's it's in the context of the Great Awakening. And when the Great Awakening occurred, there were all these crazy things that would happen. Somebody would be preaching the gospel and to a big crowd of people, and all of a sudden half of the crowd would fall to the ground in an instant together. You think, what are these physical phenomena? And— uh, immediately there was one group that said, look at all this physical stuff going on. This has got to be of the Lord. This is this is a true work of the Spirit. And, of course, there was another camp that said, um, look at all this physical stuff going on. This can't be of the Lord or of the Spirit. And it would be easy to dive into either one of those camps. But Edwards comes in with theological precision and uh, seeks to identify a true religious affection and so i just think the the whole context in which he writes this work is brilliant he goes on to defi- define uh an affection he says in the first section of the book he says you you the affection is very important affections are um, key to christianity the bible's forever commanding our affections and you got to have genuine religious affection if you're a christian and he defines it as um, a faculty or, or, or an exercise of the will, and the will being a faculty of our soul. So we're created body and soul, 
And then our soul is made up of our understanding and our will and where we have this vigorous exercise of the will there we have an affection and then he just tracks down what in book two he talks about what are not uh signs of true religious affection in chapter three what are signs yeah yeah edwards is a brilliant theologian he's the by far the best theologian of revival the world's ever seen mm-hmm. and i think rightly he's been called the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. And the way that he takes what today would be regarded as, of course, this is a sign of God's movement and God's uh, reviving work and just exposes them as not necessarily. Uh, So I think he has 12 signs that do not prove that what is happening is a work of God. So if a, a person seems to be overwhelmed with comfort and joy and has conviction of sin and righteousness, that that necessarily proves this is a work of God. He says, well, no, not necessarily, because there can be other motivating factors that could produce those same kinds of um, affections. One of the things I appreciate about Edwards in this book, he, he makes a comment like this. I think it is in the first part. He says he believes it's his duty as a pastor to raise his people's affections as high as they're capable Mm -hmm. of being raised as long as they're being raised by the truth Mm -hmm. and that that balanced way of thinking uh keeps us from going off the rails in two bad directions one yeah let's do whatever we got to do to pump up people emotionally Yeah, Edwards is a brilliant theologian. He's rightly been called the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, and he's certainly the greatest theologian of revival that the church has ever known. Uh, What he does in this book in terms of distinguishing between true and false signs of genuinely religious or Christian affections is brilliant. And he debunks some of the things that today, if people were to uh, speak of them, we would almost everybody would almost give them a pass or say, well, of course, that must be a a work of God. Mm -hmm. So the person that says, oh, but I'm completely convinced that God has come to me and I feel very strongly about this, have great assurance Mm -hmm. that this is God working in me. Edward says, not so fast. Let's look at that because you can have assurance that is false. You can have confidence that is not grounded upon that which God has actually revealed, but on something else. And we see that happening uh, lots of time. I'm reminded of uh, Bunyan's character, Uh, talkative in Pilgrim's Progress who talks about his good heart and he knows he has a good heart because his heart tells him so Mm. and that would be one example that um, of how confidence doesn't necessarily show true affections being grounded in biblical religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Edwards says that as ministers of the gospel we should uh, seek to raise the affections of our hearers and not be uh, hesitant about doing so as long as they're being raised uh, by the truth yeah. and nothing but the truth. So that that is a powerful uh, word to preachers. And when this dawned upon me, I thought of all the implications for my preaching ministry. 
If an affection is something, if a religious affection arises from beholding the beauty of God, this, his, his excellencies, then my job is to proclaim the excellencies of God, to hold that before the eye of the congregation and pray that the Spirit would open up their eyes to behold the glory of God and in so beholding that glory to be transformed, kind of like Second Corinthians mm-hmm. tells us. And it's it's easy for me to drift into uh, particular instruction about commands uh, or particular promises to the congregation detached from the nature of God. And I don't mean that we should avoid uh, direct application of commands to the congregation, exhortation, or putting those promises before the congregation. But it needs to be done in a way that's pointing back to the God of the Bible and showing who he is, declaring who he is, and how uh, the truth of who he is and what he's done drives everything else. Yeah. Don't you think, though, that uh, using certain kind of lighting and certain kind of music actually helps to raise people's affections? Certain kinds of lighting and certain kinds of I mean, if we're trying to raise their affections as high as we possibly can— you have uh, you've ventured down the path. I mean, you'd be easy to sit here and like repudiate the uh, you know the kind of individualistic modern worship movement. But you've said you know if I were to take your question, and really say what role what role does um, our kind of music play in the raising of the affections? You've kind of actually asked a tougher question that you got me thinking about. Well, good. You know, I want you to think. Surely the 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 lyrics of the songs. No, no, I'm not talking about the lyrics. I'm right, talking about the style. About the style. Mm-hmm. The melody. Oh, the goodness. instrumentation. I remember. Um, you know, you've got certain certain musical styles that are um, enjoyable. You know. Um, Remember the entertainer, that little song, da 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 great song, isn't it? Do you want it played for the offering? Is it fitting for the worship of the one true God? It's I wonder about that. It's almost got like a a style that could that's glorious and all that. But I don't know in its that place. it's place. Yeah, I don't know that its place is in the worship of the Trinity. Yeah, and one of the concerns I'm, I, I don't want to just rag on people who do lighting and music differently than maybe you know what I might recommend it being done. But I do want to issue warnings here that sometimes we can affect people's uh, emotions, their their affections mm-hmm. by these external means that have nothing to do with the transcendent beauty of divine things. Mm-hmm. And that's not what Edward's talking about. So if your sermon plays well in a dark auditorium with mood music behind it, but doesn't play well in a well-lit warehouse where there's no music, then there's probably something going on there that you want to look at that's not real healthy. Yeah, I think Edwards breaks this down with uh, an affection is is a vigorous, sensible inclination of the will but it, it is a response to a truth, truth perceived by the understanding, by the mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a, what he calls passions. I think he might get into feelings that kind of wash over us quickly that that are not um, immediately perceived you know, by the mind. But the affection is when our mind sees this truth in Scripture as it's being proclaimed to us, and then it 
drives down and has this uh, impact upon our affections. Yeah, and that's uh, a great reminder to us as preachers that we should always be aiming for the heart through the mind. That it's not enough just to inform, but neither is enough just to stir people up. We want people to respond with deepest affection because of what they understand. Preach that to the heart through the mind. Booyah. In our third segment here, we are talking about the law of God. Not because we're legalists. People say, oh my goodness, they have a whole segment because they're so pharisaical. It's not it. No, it's because we're not legalists. We're not legalists, but we do know this, that the God who gave us the gospel also gave us the law. You say, what? And God who gave us the gospel loves his gospel, and God who gave us the law loves his law. Say, what? And if God loves both law and gospel, then we as God's people should love both law and gospel. Oh, my goodness, just preach that. There you go. Water it's like a my, little catechism like session right there. I like it. thirsty soul up in here. So we, we've been talking about all different kinds of commands. We've done a few different things. We walked through the Ten Commandments. We jumped back to the beginning, looking at commandments that are in Scripture. And then we got this idea, hey, let's, do, let's show that these Ten Commandments uh, are a summary of the eternal moral law of God. And one reason that we would advance as support for that argument is that they all appear before the giving of the law at Sinai. Hmm. And so we've already had two uh, sessions in which we talked about command number one that's seen before Exodus 20, command number two that's seen before the revelation of the law at Sinai. Now we're talking about command number three. Uh, remind us what command number three is, Tom. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Man, Lord will not this. hold him guiltless. Oh. Who takes his name in vain. You got those things right in your pocket. Absolutely. I've also got it in front of me in my open Bible. The open Bible. All right. So where do we see this? Uh, and again, this command not only concerns somebody that's actually, you know, explicitly uh, swearing the Lord's name or something like that, uh, but it concerns reverence. Yeah. You're to treat the name of the Lord with reverence. What did Pharaoh do before the giving of the law at Sinai? He basically scoffed at the name of the Lord whom Moses brought to him. He said, who is this God? Mm. So in Exodus chapter 5, this is what we read in verse 1. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. They may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, mm. I will not let Israel go. Mm. There you got it. Irreverence yeah. for the Most High. That the man, thing is Pharaoh knows. We know from other scriptures that Pharaoh knows this God. He's your creator, Pharaoh. Yeah. He's the one who's making your heart beat right now. Yeah, man, done taken make, the name of the Lord in vain. He took the name of the Lord in vain, and he had no excuse because what can be known about God is made plain to man in the things that have been made, as Romans 1 says. So mm. we know that Pharaoh is blaspheming the Most High right here in Exodus 50 breaking the third commandment, he's disregarding it, and he's suffering the punishment for doing so. Exactly. So the third commandment was not invented on Mount Sinai. It's not something that's just for Israel? Not just for Israel. It is for people as people made in God's image. A little side note we talk about often around here. 
we are perfectly fine with saying that the law, the Ten Commandments, were given as a covenant to Israel. Absolutely. It was a ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Uh, it was a ministry that was passing away, but I'm saying it's a ministry. It's a covenant. It's the old covenant. But uh, given what we see in the Ten Commandments appearing before Sinai, helps us to see that there's more going on here, too. It's not just a covenant given to Sinai. It's also the eternal moral law revealed, summarized. Yeah, it's that by which every creature made in God's image will be judged. So may we give reverence to God, the reverence that he deserves. As we're told to pray in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. Help me to reverence your name. Surely there's not a single one of us, even in Christ, that do that as we ought every day. We don't reverence his name as much as we should because he's worthy of infinite reverence. And so we're continually dependent upon Christ, the one who has reverenced God perfectly for us and for our salvation. We trust Christ, rejoice in him, and seek to reverence the Lord as we ought. Yeah, you can't come before the Lord. You can't revere him outside of Christ. So the only way you will ever obey this commandment is by coming to this true God through Christ. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.